Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Proverbs are given so that we know what is generally true. They are good generalizations, but they are still generalizations. They are like the rules of the basketball game. And exceptions to the game could be made and compared to when bad calls are made by referees. They happen, but ordinarily, the way the game is played usually determines the outcome. And considered this way, it is generally true that those who are industrious in their labors have enough bread for themselves and their families. But the flip side of this proverb is not about the lazy man who does not work, but rather this proverb is about what he pursues, what he follows after, and what he looks to. If he follows, what he follows are vain things instead of working, then he will find himself in poverty. If what he follows has the appearance of work, but, is consist, but he consistently comes up empty, or if he does not expect to provide for himself in the normal labors for his needs, but is regularly looking for a financial savior, whether that be a political figure or a get-rich-quick charlatan, then he will, as the proverb says, have plenty, but he will have plenty of poverty. The common antidote to an empty bread basket is getting up early and working hard. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to deal where you are. speak to you today about um, is something that God has just, has just kind of laid on my heart about the attitude of Christians in the world today. And not just, it's not just a, a today thing, it's a historical issue. And it's the question of, um, of Paul in Philippians chapter 4 when he speaks to the Philippian church and he says that I desire for you to rejoice. Right? He says to them, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice and we don't often take, when the Bible says always and uses that phrase, we don't always take it seriously. For instance, when the, when the Bible says, when it says, says pray without ceasing and give thanks at all times, these are statements that are defining maybe not even the practice of a Christian, but it's our attitude. It's one that we should have an attitude of thanksgiving at all times, that we should always be relying on the Lord in prayer for our strength and our life and so we should also always have this attitude of joy. And I personally just become disheartened quite a bit at just the, the attitude of Christians in the world, um, and myself included, that we can get, we can get so caught up in, in depression and looking at the world through a negative lens um, when we have a Savior who has already declared victory over the world and victory over sin and death. And so that's, that's the subject of what I want to talk to you about today. 
um, is this idea of, of Christ's victory through the resurrection over sin and death. So just as a, just as a in, means of introduction, I want to draw attention to a, a quote that as I was growing up, I heard quite a bit, and it, was, it always came up in the church context. And this is what's, what's really interesting about it, is that I always assumed that if something kept getting brought up in the church context, that it was always being quoted of a, of a church leader or a church father, theologian, something along those lines. And it's this, it's this quote that says that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. How many of you have heard that phrase before, that quote? Now, what's interesting about this is I, as I began thinking about that, well, first of all, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right that, that, if we, that we can become so heavenly minded that we're, that we're of no earthly good. Because there's the, the point of our, of our life in, in Christ is that our focus is on Him. And so if we look at the Corinthian church, for instance, and I realize that now this is my second time with you, and both times I've preached out of 1 Corinthians. Um, so you can obviously tell I have a love for this, this book in particular. But the Corinthian church was one that probably the opposite would have been true for them. That they were so earthly minded that they were of no heavenly good. See, wherever our focus is placed, that's what's going to drive our attitudes, that's what's going to drive our actions and our, and our understanding, our perspective on life. So that quote, um, that you, some people are, of no, are so heavily minded, they're of no earthly good, actually does not come from a theologian, does come from a church father or anything like that. It actually comes from Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, he, this is the senior Oliver Wendell Holmes. His um, son, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., is... Is, uh, is quite famous as being a Supreme Court justice um, back, in the, back in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. But Oliver Wendell Holmes was, was an American physician, and he was also he was a poet, and he wrote a lot of um, really famous works that began kind of defining, defining American culture. What we begin noticing is that at, at this point in history, we begin seeing a, a change in the way that, that people in America in particular um, viewed God's will in the grander world scheme and began focusing a lot more instead on this thing. That Oliver Wendell Holmes, his, his quote, in a lot of ways sh- began shaping American Christianity. So much so that we began not so much focusing in, in the broader sense on these, these core root doctrines that define the church but instead began focusing on, on what it is in light of the fact that God has redeemed us that we are doing now. And while that brought a lot of really great things in terms of American missions that continue on today, is that there is something big that was lost here. So, I promise that we'll get to 15, uh, 50 through 58. But if you'll turn back in your Bible to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what really impresses upon my heart and really was why I wanted to bring it to you. One thing I appreciate all the time about coming here is that you guys are very creedal. You guys do the catechism, you guys do the Apostles' Creed every single time. And because of that, I know that I can speak to you about this, is that throughout the course of history, there have been certain creeds that have, that have come and have gone, and other ones that have kind of withstood the test of time. Well, the first creed of the church is captured here in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is, is quoting this, this is, this is probably not something that Paul himself had, had coined. 
But instead, this was an early creed of the church. But what's amazing to you about is 15.3 is Paul's view and understanding of this. Because he says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's about to follow, according to the Apostle Paul, is of the first importance for the life of the church and in the life of every single believer. And he goes on to say, and some of you might have memorized this as children, and it would be great to be able to add it back into your scripture memory if it's not. It says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, my issue with the phrase that some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good is that without the perspective of heaven, we cannot be of any earthly good. And so I want us to think about things in the past, things to present, and also things future as we think about the hope of the Christian is not the, in heaven, but is actually in the resurrection. It's the fact that Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, but that one day we will all be raised back to newness of life. And so the point of today is that because Christ is victorious, we should not despair, but instead we should rejoice. Let's read this passage together. And I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I want us to see through this passage that because Christ is victorious, we will be made new. Because Christ is victorious, we will not stay dead. Because Christ is victorious, we will overcome sin. And because Christ is victorious, we will rejoice in the hope of the gospel. So let's focus in on verses 50 through 53, and we'll see this truth that because Christ is victorious, that we will be made new. Perhaps there's no greater source of suffering in this world, in this world um, than physical suffering that comes from the brokenness of sin. It doesn't take long living on this earth to recognize that something is wrong with the human body in a broad scale. And what we mean by that is that as beautifully as God has designed this body for its, its um, interaction with the world, with our intellect and our creativity, those th different things that define and show us the image of God within us, it doesn't take long to realize that it's not always working the way it should. It's been a privilege for me in, in so many ways, something I don't, didn't think about when I was younger, but about watching the people around me grow older. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing because 
on one hand, what I see is the wisdom that, that comes from age, of being able to, to have been there and done that and seen the way that God continues to be faithful throughout the entirety of, of one's life. There's a great perspective in older saints on, on suffering, on things that, that perhaps those of us that are younger um, might find a little bit more difficult. I know it's been really encouraging for me in even the way of raising children. Every single time a new one comes in the, into the house, sleep goes away. Um, tempers rise because sleep has gone away. Um, and everything else that happens because sleep has gone away. Did we mention that when you have children, it tends to be that sleep goes away, right? And so, but because of it, it's been interesting, especially my parents, it's kind of, they're, they're here today, and so it's kind of interesting speaking in this way. But the perspective that comes from them as grandparents towards, towards us when we come and say, oh yeah, I didn't get any sleep last night. Oh yeah, we've been there, done that. You know, and being able to, and just being able to speak encouragement and truth into their, in their lives. But there's another thing that happens as we grow older, and that's the fact that we realize that the energy of youth begins quickly escaping us. It's another great thing about watching children run, run around, and it just seems like they'll just go, 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 until finally, right, they, they collapse, and you, you tuck them in bed, and, and then they, they get up the next morning, and they do it again, and you're like, I wish I had that energy again. But that, that reality just becomes even more and more true to us the older and older that we get, when joints start failing, when our memory isn't quite what it used to be. And we begin realizing really quickly that something is wrong. See, what the brokenness of sin did is ultimately it separated us from God. But throughout all of Scripture, there is one thing that God always provides. God is always the provider of life. In fact, when Adam and Eve were separated from God, they surely did die. Their body became um, in a state of rapid decay. They took course over certainly a couple hundred years for them at that point. But it was this recognition that God was as the sustainer that that then cut off from that source of life with him. This is played out even more so, not just even with those of us that are, that are Asian getting older, and I'm not sure if I can quite classify myself in that category yet, um, looking around the room and, and realizing there are some in here that are so much older than me. But it's even also seen in the, the reality of, of, of children that are born with infirmities. They're born with disabilities. It's even seen in those people that because of by accident or by something outside of their control that their mobility is, is taken away from them. It's very quickly that we realize that something is wrong. And so what you have in these, these first four vo- verses is this beautiful reality here in verse 51 that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. And this is a change that is, that is a, something that we will have never experienced before. And something that we just ha- have comprehension of what it's going to be like. But what we do know is that in the same way that God created Adam and Eve with perfect humanity and with perfect bodies, that one day in the newness of life that we will all receive new bodies, in which infirmities, in which disabilities in which the aches and pains of growing old will no longer be a reality for us. It's the hope that Joni Anderson Tata speaks about when she, when she talks about how God's grace is new for her every morning. 
but it does not change for her the hope of one day being able to walk again, of being able to hug and to hold, to be able to run and to play things that have, have escaped her. And so for us, as we, as we think on this reality, looking forward to that one day, when our bodies will be made new, is that we need to remember that our hope right now, in, as we wait for that to happen, is that we still have a God who is the sustainer, and that His grace is new every morning. And that when we find ourselves, in, we are, we're slowing down, or our, our memories are, are fading for us, and we just can't do the things that we, that we have wanted to do, because, because this body begins failing us, is that we look and we recognize that strength comes from the Lord. That we focus on Him, we ask for His mercy to be known every morning, that we would be sensitive to what it is that He is asking us to do. Because if He asks us to do something, He always equips us to do it. Whether that means that for this, for this day, um, for the purpose of, of, of playing with grandchildren, that He gives you a, a renewed strength in your joints so that you can be a joy to, to those children and to, um, and to yourself. It's the changing from relying on our own strength on a daily basis to relying on the strength of the Lord. So that's the first thing. Because Christ is victorious, we will be made new. And we should live in reality of that. And the second thing in verses 54 and 55 is the hope of the resurrection proper. That because Christ is victorious, we will not stay dead. It's this, this beautiful thing that we, we think about this, this question of why Jesus had came to die. The question that's being offered by Paul throughout all of chapter 15 is not why did Jesus come to die, though he does touch on that, but why did Jesus have to be raised back to life? Because sin brought death into the world, life had to come through the world through righteousness. And it was because as Jesus died, he paid the penalty for our sin, but in his raising to newness of life, you had a reversal of the fall. That in the fall you had sin which led to death, and in the resurrection you had righteousness that led to life. And it's in this that we often, it can escape us at times about the fact that that death is looming over every single one of us. You notice how Paul just, just hits a bunch of things that are just so common to our, to our human experience in this passage that the resurrection is the remedy for. Because it also does not take one long in this life to recognize the fact that every single one of us has an end date. Every one of us has an expiration date on this side of heaven. Death looms over us all. And yet, we are told in some way that it's all right. That's another, another thing that has changed in the, the past couple of months since I've been with you, is that experienced some loss. Watch my parents experience loss. Watch friends and family experience loss. I just know, looking, even looking around this room, knowing because you are human, that you've experienced loss in this way. And see, death is this constant reminder of us of the fallenness of the world. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't move past that too quickly. 
Because sometimes what, what, the way that we, that we can deal with death is just kind of by denial. Like we know it's coming, but, but we, just, we just don't want to think about it. We just don't want to worry about it. It's when death comes and, and hits us in the face by somebody close to us dying that we don't want to grieve. We don't want to, we just want to move on. We don't want to acknowledge that it's happened. But see, the beautiful thing about death is that it reminds us of the need of the cross. It reminds us of the need of a Savior. The fact that we have an expiration date means that we need something that will give us hope in this life. See, as a, as a, as a young kid, and even to an extent today, the, the fear of death was something that was always, always in my mind. And in a lot of ways, if we're, if we're honest, I mean, there's, there's a part of this that's a survival instinct. There's a reason why we are not running out into the middle of the road um, as cars are blazing by. We recognize the fact that we are, we're, we're designed to preserve our own life. And so fear of death in one, say, in one sense is natural, but in another sense, it shows us that we have lost our perspective on something. See... I've been really encouraged in my own faith by, the, by reading the ministries of, of older saints. And particularly people who um, have exemplified what it means to follow Christ in really tangible ways. And one of, one of my favorites is a, is a man by the name of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were uh, martyrs to the Wadani people. I've always been amazed, by the way, at the fact that if you look at every single church and every single ethnicity... If, we, if you start going back far enough in its history, you realize that every single one of us are sons and daughters of martyrs. In the faith, is what I mean. Every single one of us is a, is a son or daughter of a martyr in some way. Even if it's having to go all the way back to, to uh, um, Deacon Stephen. But Jim Elliott has a quote that's absolutely amazing. Because as, as they were going down and as they, were, as they were looking to evangelize the Wadani and bring the gospel to them, it was not... A mystery to them. It was not uncommon knowledge that the Wadani were a violent people. That they were known that when foreigners had come into their, their area of the Amazon, that they would they would kill them. They looked at it as an, as an affront to them. And so, as Jim Elliott was being asked, you know, well, why, you know, knowing that there's a threat of your life, you know, why would, why would you continue to go? And he has this great quote that is written on my wall that I would also, it's just rich with great theology. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, death, even though it lingers over all of us, because Christ had victory and conquered over it, we no longer have to live in fear of death. And even more than that, we can have the perspective of Paul that when he says that to be absent from the body, to be, be present with Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our perspective on our suffering is changed by the resurrection, but also our perspective on death is changed. And so because of this, we, we need to think about consequences for what it means to live out our faith. See, as Paul, as Paul is writing this, this was a time that was rich with persecution of the early church. And so for them, death was the persecution that they knew was coming for them. And so because of that, he is able to say to this that the perishable will put on the imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, and death will be swallowed up in victory because the Corinthian church needed to know 
that this is the consequence for following after Christ, but it is worth it. That this isn't a defeat. Death is no longer a defeat. Death becomes a victory because of what it means for those who are in Christ. And so our perspective on our suffering changes because we recognize that Christ's victory means that we will not stay dead. Verses 56 through 57, third point. Because Christ is victorious, we will overcome sin. Paul writes that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question here that I have for you is looking at this verse. What does Paul mean gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? What is the object of victory? What is the enemy here? Verse 56 has three possible answers for us. It's either death, it's either sin, or it's the law. Which one is it? See, it's an interesting question because if Paul is saying that that Christ is giving us the victory over something, then if we look back on his life, we understand really quickly what Paul is talking about because it technically is all three. It's technically all three. In one sense, you have that Christ's death on the cross was a defeat of sin. And the way that we know this is because we are told through the, the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Christ died so that sin could be defeated. But then he rose to life so that death was defeated. And he lived a righteous life so that not that the law could be defeated in the sense that it was abolished, but in the sense that there was no longer this righteousness from the law that people would seek. But it was only a righteousness in Christ. See, Christ is the answer to every single one of these things. That's why Paul can say that he gives us the victory through Christ over sin and over death and over the law. Now the focus that I want us to look at though is this focus on this idea of victory over sin. Because again, there's this helplessness that comes to Christians in the sense that here we are living in light of the cross and in light of the perfect righteousness of Christ, but yet we continue to sin. That's why one of the most raw and real chapters in the New Testament is Romans chapter 7. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this, it's a great, it's a great thing to, to you know, diagram and try and trace it through. Because it's incredibly confusing in a lot of ways. Because you hear Paul saying about how he does the things that he doesn't want to do and the things that he wants to do. Um, he doesn't do the things he doesn't want to do. What's he doing? Like, does this sound familiar now to some of you? And so, but the whole idea is that we have, this, we have this struggle now with the fact that here Christ has won the victory, yet still we're battling over sin. And we recognize that this is something that also gives us hope in the resurrection. Because when that resurrection comes, when we pass from this life into the next, and when we're raised to everlasting life with Him, the fact that sin will no longer be a struggle. Again, it does not take long to realize that sin causes destruction and damage, not just in the world, but in our own personal lives. But this is why we have the hope that is alive to us in the fact that, that when, when, again, as Paul writes earlier, he says that no temptation 
has come to us except which is common to man. And yet God will give us a way out. And so because of this, we, become, we need to be really real with, us, with our sin. And that's the fact that when we sin, it's not because we were deceived into doing it. It's because we wanted to sin. Because when temptation comes, we are always given a way out. This is why we, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation to deliver us from the evil one. It's because we recognize the fact that when temptation comes, we, we're presented with a choice. But what the resurrection affords us is the newness of life that's evident in us. That's why we're told that we we died with Christ and we're raised to newness of life with Him. And because of that, that we now have the same power of the resurrection is present within us to combat sin in our lives. Now, does that mean that we'll be perfect on this side of, of heaven? No. But it does mean, and we recognize this, that sanctification means that we will continue to become more and more victorious over sin in our life. And the last thing, last thing that I want us to be able to see here is that because Christ is victorious, we will rejoice in the hope of the gospel. Verse 58, this last encouragement from Paul, in light of the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, Paul is writing to a time when people were actively being slaughtered for their faith. Just throughout all the early church. That was martyrdom was an incredibly common thing for them. And one of the questions that is asked is, what's the point? Is this really worth it? And that's what Paul is confronting with this. Because you had... Um, and one side you had these people that were saying that there, there was no resurrection, but Paul is saying there absolutely has to be a resurrection because the Christ isn't raised. But the other piece of it is that without the resurrection, we begin wondering about whether or not this life is worth it. Everything that I've said to you, we have, we have, we have a, a world that's full of, of infirmities, it's full of death, it's full of sin. And yet here we are called as members of Christ, to go forward and preach the gospel to all nations, to bring life to all the nations, and yet there's a common question that is it worth it? At one point, it seems kind of ridiculous that we're, we're given this, right, this the idea of, of snatching people from the fires of hell, and we're asking the question is, if possibly we might lose this life, is it worth it? That's what the hope of the resurrection really is all about. The fact that we can be moving forward, that we can be steadfast in doing the work of the Lord because of the fact that we are achieving an imperishable crown. The crown of life that is available to all who are in Him. And so because of that, persecution is going to look a lot of different ways. I mean, I don't have to tell you that we are approaching a time where we are moving further and further as a, in the Western world being post-Christian. No longer does, does the Christian faith have the kind of clout that it did even, even 20 years ago in the public arena. And if that happens, then we're just, we're just following in the faithful footsteps of our brothers over in Europe. Like we, we have in this, in my studies, I've encountered people from, from all over the globe, and it's one of those things that we hope and we pray that, the, that God's will 
will be done in the sense that we'll still be able to speak the truths of the Scripture and not have to, to fear persecution from our government. But that, that's something that we often take for granted. See, the question will become for every single person in this room, and I really do believe for every single Christian in America and in the West in the coming years, is how much do we have our hope in Christ? Do we have our hope in Christ? Do we have our hope in something else other in this world? Because it is becoming more and more difficult to be an Orthodox Christian. It's just the reality. Again, even if you look at the the Gospel and Acts, it was very easy to be a Christian right at the beginning of it, right? But then very quickly they began being poured out as a drink offering. And it became more and more difficult. So that's more of a question that I ask for you. Is can we rejoice in the hope of the gospel? Is our hope left in Jesus Christ? And is he so worth it to you that though everything else could go away, you could lose your home, you could lose your family, you could lose your reputation, but it would it all be worth it to you? All for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. That is what it means to pick up your cross daily and to follow Christ. And is it worth it? The answer for me is yes. And so I ask you the same question. So we are called to persevere, recognizing that through the hope of the resurrection that Christ has defeated sin and death, meaning that we can live holy and righteous before Him. And that we can live without fear in light of the coming days. Because we know that Jesus is coming again to take us home, to be with him, to live forever and live abundantly in his presence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done for us in the cross. And being raised again to new life. So that we may hope Not in this life. Not in the the things around us. But we can hope in that which is imperishable. We can hope in you, Jesus. Lord, we wait and we long. We join our brothers around the Lord in praying, How long, O Lord, until you will bring justice upon the earth? But as we wait for you, God, I just pray that your mercies would be new for us every morning. Give us great times with you that we open up your word and that we're refreshed and our daily bread is found only in you. That we would not try to move forward in our own strength, but God, as our, as our bodies and our minds fail, that we would look more and more to your grace, that you would be the one that carries us. And God, we just pray for us as a church, knowing, God, that you have brought us together from all walks and backgrounds for the purpose of glorifying you and making you known among the world. And God, we, we want to exemplify that unity in our world as it becomes even more and more divided. And so, God, we do that by praying to you. We pray in the way that you have taught us. As Pastor Major said, we are called to persevere. And in Hebrews 12, 1, we find that same calling. <laughs> It says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As Christians, we have been given a race to run, a race of service to God, a race of sacrifice, and often suffering. This race must be run with endurance, but it's hard. Along the way, we grow weary, we are tempted to cease from running, we are tried to the point of nearly turning aside. Jesus knows the difficulty of our race, and like any good forerunner or trailblazer, he left us with this sacrament of communion as a marker along the path. In it, he says to us, remember, I am the way. You have made it this far, now keep running. At this table, he gives us a glimpse of the finish line. He says, here is what you are running for. I am your very great reward, now keep running. It is here also that he nourishes us. Like a water station along the marathon course, he refreshes us at his table and says to us, be strengthened and keep running. Dear saints, come to the Lord's Supper, and as you partake, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He endured the race for us. He finished it ahead of us, and by his grace, we will endure and finish as well. Christ's body, broken for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.